Good morning, church. Hey, if you'll grab your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter chapter 5, that's where we're going to be in just a few moments. 1 Peter chapter 5, so if you can go ahead and get there, uh, we'll be at a good spot. Hey, today for our corporate prayer moment, we have the opportunity uh, to pray very specifically uh, for a ministry called Two Feathers. Two Feathers Ministry, that's our Choctaw mission. Uh, it, it, it exists over in Choctaw, Mississippi. Two Feathers, run by Rick and Deb Kessiker. This incredible ministry that, that really longs to minister to First Nation groups, Native American tribes, and specifically this one in Choctaw is one that we've been able to partner with for several years, not only as a part of Double Oak Community Church in Chelsea, but prior to that, uh, Mount Laurel has had a relationship with Rick and Deb uh, for years and years and years, and so ministry opportunities abound there in, uh, in Choctaw, and so it's been a really, really cool thing for us to partner with them and to come alongside them and be in a spot where we can say, hey, you know what? We can send people. We can offer the opportunity for people to go and share the gospel with these other folks that are there. So this morning, uh, there's a number of these folks that are here in this worship service. Uh, Brock Hamrick and Sarah Hamrick, I believe, are in this service as well as their kids, Caleb, Gianna, and Samuel, are going to be going on this trip. Uh, the Marburys, I believe, are in this service as well. Liz and Mark Clayton uh, are already over in Choctaw preparing for the week. Wes Hasten was in first service, and the McKees were in first service. But I wanted to let you know that this is an opportunity not to just pray for people that we know we're going somewhere and we can watch them go. There's a big difference between watching them go and actually deciding, hey, as a church, we're actually sending them. And that's really what's happening in this missional moment is that these brothers and sisters, these believers are going out from us on this missional journey to go to Choctaw, Mississippi, right? And spend time with these folks and share the good news of Jesus Christ with them. So here's what I'd love uh, to happen. If your name is on the screen, would you mind standing uh, in this moment so that we as a church can not just see you, uh, but come alongside you and pray for you. So uh, this is the fun part. Hey, I would encourage you to, to come around these folks. Come around the Hamricks, Brian Marbury, who's standing there in the back in a very subtle way. Maybe come forward a little bit uh, and let people come around you and put hands on you and pray for you. These are people that we are, we are truly uh, sending uh, and look, if, if you don't know these folks, you're like, hey, I just, came, I just came here today, right? First time in this church, and you're like, it's already getting weird. Uh, look, we, we're a family here. We're God's people, and we want to genuinely pray specifically for one another. Uh, so this would be my encouragement, man. Go, go put a hand on those folks. Go pray for those brothers and sisters this morning. Because uh, look, God is, they're not just signing up to go do something. God's called them to do this. To, to lay it on their heart to go minister and, mish, uh, and really serve these people. So let's take a moment uh, to pray for these folks. If you will, bow your head and pray with me. Heavenly Father, this morning we had the unique opportunity um, to pray for brothers and sisters who go to proclaim the good news that though we were once dead in our trespasses and sins, that we've been made alive in Jesus Christ. And, and Father, these folks... Uh, Liz and Mark, who are already there, Father Wes, Brock and Sarah and Caleb and Gianna and Samuel, Brian, Mandy, Preston, Blair, Cammie, Emma and Micah, Father, they have the opportunity this week, Father, to share that life, that good news with others. So, Father, we pray that you would do that, pray that you would give them boldness, that you would give them compassion, that you give them the opportunity to build relationships and connect with others in such a way that they might be able to share their life and ultimately, Father, their life in you their life that comes through your son Jesus with others. God, empower them with your spirit. Give them encouragement, and wisdom, and discernment. Um, Father, flood their hearts this week with, with joy as they see you work amongst people that you love. 
people that you see that you have compassion upon. And Father, I just pray that they would be encouraged in you all the more to share the good news of Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for doing that. Um, and we are praying for you and with you, and it's our delight to send you. Uh, we're excited for the ministry that you guys are going to get to be a part of over this next week. They're doing a BBS and all kinds of stuff, so we can be praying for our brothers and sisters that are out there. First Peter chapter 5 is where we're going to be this morning as we jump into our text. First Peter chapter 5. And in many ways, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 11, and we're going to see this morning that, that Peter is kind of really wrapping up this letter and kind of saying the final things that he wants to say to these brothers and sisters that are in this place, that are in uh, present-day Turkey is where it would be on the map if we were to look for it. It's in Asia Minor. There's these churches that are there, and they're young churches, really not unlike ourselves in many ways. Just a, a group of believers, that, that some of which are very new, some of which haven't known one another for the, the longest of times, but, but they're really starting to try to grow in their faith and learn what it means to walk with the Lord, and they're encountering all this suffering, all of these struggles, all these pains, specifically from the outside world. They are sojourners and they're exiles is the language that Peter uses. He just basically says, look, you, you don't fit in this world. Why? Because just as we sang earlier, their citizenship is in heaven. That's, that's their real home. Their real home is with God the Father, where Christ is. And so how do they live in this world in which they seemingly don't belong? Well, Peter's really going to describe that in this last part of the letter. And this morning, he's kind of given in many ways kind of the, his famous last words. He's really writing to kind of recap all that he said and bring it down to, to one big boiling point of how this is all going to happen, how they're supposed to live, what life is meant to look like. And here's the thing, I think for you and me, it's really hard to identify with telling something or telling someone something of, of, of real substance because you and I have the ability to communicate with each other at all times. Like this incredible thing was invented called the text message. And now, I don't know about you, but we don't really write letters anymore. We don't really have this moment where we, where we really are trying to pour our heart and soul into something because, look, Peter's not going to speak with them again for some time. And so for him, it, it's of grave importance. It, it's terribly important that he state exactly what he needs to say to them at this moment. For you and me, that's tougher. We don't, we don't really do that anymore. Like, we just share information constantly back and forth like I, I can probably only equate it to like my cell phone dying right you ever had that moment where your cell phone dies and you're like trying to scramble to share something with somebody or get a call out or get a text out before it dies for me it's always in this Publix uh, I do believe that that place uh, does not want my phone to work ever uh, and it's one of the, the greatest struggles I experienced from the enemy is that, that I walk into that place and I can't I got no service uh, maybe it's Verizon that hates me. I don't know. But uh, I end up, like, I'm scrambling to text me. I'm always like, what, what else is on the list? Uh, do we need milk? Do we need bread? Do we need eggs? And ultimately, I will get all of those things. We didn't need two of them, and all three brands were wrong, so I messed the whole thing up. But we're really never at a spot where we can't communicate with one another. I want to try to, to the best of your ability, can you go back to a place in your life where you got a letter, or you heard last words from somebody, 
that were really, really important. Try to go to that place and dig in and find that feeling. And that's really what Peter's trying to express to these brothers and sisters that he loves so deeply. And all along the way, as we, we've walked through this series and seen, part of the Christian life for these sojourners, these exiles, is, is really just one of suffering. They experience suffering because they, they really aren't a part of the world in which they live. And Peter this morning is going to really share with them the secret to suffering. The secret to moving through it. They can't go over it. They can't go under it. They can't circumvent it and go around it. But he's going to tell them how they move through it. And very specifically to three groups that all comprise the church, how the church is meant to be characterized in suffering. These are the three things we're going to see from the text this morning. Number one, it's all based around humility. One, that there's to be humility in pastoral leadership. The people that lead and shepherd and serve the church are to be characterized by humility. Second, the church as a whole, all of us, brothers and sisters, we're meant to live in such a way where we have humility as the people of God. That ought to be one of the defining characteristics of who we are. Third and finally, that not only does this apply to leadership, not only does this apply to our interactions with one another, but we're called to live in such a way that we're personally humble as individuals. As we dive into verses 6 through 11, we're going to see that very specifically. But these are the things that Peter longs to share. He says, humility is the secret to suffering. He'll show us as we walk through this text. This is 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. We'll read to verse 11. It says this. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord that we should say together. Thanks be to God. Number one, the church in a season of suffering is to be characterized by humility in its pastoral leadership. Now, beginning of verse one, Peter describes and is really speaking to the elders of the church. In a moment, we'll kind of really get into talking about what, what does that word mean? What it, some of us grew up with elders. Some of us didn't. We didn't understand what elders were. We just had deacons, or maybe we grew up with a bishop, or maybe we grew up in a context where I don't know who that is or what that word is. We're going to get there in a moment. Peter says, first off, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. 
The first thing that Peter says in, in, in a not-so-subtle way, it might be tougher for us to see this because of the context, but, but Peter describes himself as a fellow elder. Now, I want you to think back historically and remember who Peter is. Remember who he is, the one who has walked with Jesus, who has been with Jesus, who has seen miracles, who's seen healings, who's heard Jesus speak audibly to him. He's been there. He's seen it. He knows Jesus and has known him in an intimate way, even in his earthly life and ministry. Peter could write to these believers and say, I don't know if you guys have heard, but I'm the rock upon which Christ has built his church. Kind of a big deal. But he doesn't. He doesn't call himself an apostle. He doesn't use his authority in a domineering way. He's showing an example right from the beginning. He calls these brothers and sisters fellow elders. Now look, Peter is in a different place than a number of these elders, these leaders, these pastors are of these different churches. They're new. They're just starting out. They're just beginning to figure this thing out. And you've got somebody who's literally the rock upon which Jesus has built his church is talking to them and speaking to them. He could, he could say things with authority, but instead he chooses to call them fellow elders because it's important for him to model the humility that leadership is meant to describe as a fellow elder. Peter's longing to say that my leadership and your leadership ought to be characterized by humility. That's what it really looks like to lead. It looks like to serve others. And in this moment, as, as Peter is describing this shepherding and all of this language that comes out about being overseers of a flock and caring for those around him, he's really doing something powerful here because he's echoing the way God has spoken to his people throughout all of history. Now, I don't know about you, but I would imagine that if we were all polled in here, we would probably all guess that we don't have very many shepherds in the congregation today, right? This is just not a common occupation anymore. But what we need to know is when we look into this ancient text, that this is the way God described his relationship with his people because it was so common and it was so normal in that day. God chose this very practical, simple way of speaking with those he loved with his people and helping them understand that just as you care for a flock, so you are my flock and I care for you. And God has very specific words as to how people are meant to shepherd and how they're meant to lead. This is Ezekiel chapter 34. We look at verses 1 through 6, and you're going to see a picture of how God throughout history has spoken of his people as sheep and also that there are shepherds that are called to lead. But they're called to lead in a very specific way. This is Ezekiel 34, verses 1 through 6. It says this, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. So God's speaking against them. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The wheat you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the stray you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered 
because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. In this moment, we get a picture of what shepherds are really called to do. What are shepherds really called to do? To take care of of those in his flock, a shepherd would know his sheep. He would lead his sheep. He would feed them, and he would protect them. Think about that. That he would know his sheep, that's that's a direct echo of John chapter 10, the good shepherd passage where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know my voice. So he knows his sheep. A shepherd leads them, he guides them into good green pasture, Psalm 23, where they're called to go to feed them, to nourish them, just as this passage in Ezekiel says, to, to feed them and then to protect them. To keep them from falling into these places where they're vulnerable to predators and those that would attack and take advantage of them. This is what shepherds are to do. And Peter's saying that this is what leadership in the church is really meant to look like. It's those who know the sheep, lead the sheep, feed them, and protect them. Well, well, what does that have to do with elders? How does that connect? In a moment, we're going to look at a couple passages in Acts that really help us see that. But first, I want us to look at John chapter 21, verses 15 through 17. Because when Peter speaks and he tells these people that are a part of these churches, these fellow elders, these other shepherds and leaders, these other pastors, when he speaks to them, he's speaking from real personal experience. He knows that he's called to do this because he's been given instruction from Jesus. This is John chapter 21, verses 15 through 17. This is post-resurrection. Jesus appears to them on the beach and says this. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. So look at the language Jesus uses. He says, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. To really identify what the word means here, both feed and tend, really are comprised in this one word that's used here. It's shepherd. This is what Peter is, is being told by Jesus to do continually. Shepherd my sheep. Shepherd my sheep. Shepherd my sheep. So it, it really composes in so many ways, not just a feeding or not just attending, but, but total care. Total care. Well, what does that look like? Well, Peter says that, that that looks like oversight. It looks like oversight. This is Acts chapter 20, verse 17. We get a picture of what an elder actually is in this role, in this office in the church. Acts chapter 20, verse 17. Now, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. This is Paul calling the elders of the church to come to him. But you notice just a few verses later, he refers to them with different language. This is Acts chapter 20, same, same chapter, verse 28. It says this, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flocks. So now this shepherding language emerges. 
in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. This is really, really important for us to understand. Well, what is, what is an elder? What is, what is this in the church? You see it in a number of places. Number one, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, there's qualifications for elders. These people who are called to, to shepherd and oversee and lead churches, bodies of believers. You're also going to see references to this in Titus chapter 1. There's more qualifications there. In Philippians chapter 1 and verse 1, Paul's going to write to the overseers and the deacons. So throughout the scripture in the New Testament, we're really given a picture of what this office of elder is. And it's one who oversees, who looks over, who cares for, who ministers to those that are a part of the church. So when you see elder, you might say, well, well what's that in relationship to an overseer? Those two things are interchangeable, essentially. Elders and overseers and pastors and shepherds, all that language is meant to work together to provide this picture of those that are to care for the church. But that leadership is to come with genuine humility because of what we see in verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Then Peter says, how? But we cannot miss this. Whose flock is it? It's God's flock. It is not the, the flock of the pastor. It is not the flock of that elder. No, no, no. It's God's flock. And every day I'm thankful that I get to, to be a part of this church in such a way that I'm uniquely called to pastor and shepherd and care for each of you. But make no mistake, you are not my people. You are God's people. You're God's people. It's my job to help shepherd and care, to know you, to lead you, to feed you, to protect you. That's my job, and it's my joy. But you're not mine. You're God's. You belong to him. As Paul urged these elders to see back in Ephesus that they were purchased by Jesus' blood. You belong to God. So leaders, Peter says, ought to be ones who shepherd the flock and exercise oversight, who look over and care for believers with deep humility, not under compulsion, but willingly. Why? Why that distinction? What does that mean? Well, it means that they don't do it just because they feel like they have to. They do it willingly, and there's a recognition of humility even there because God is the one that has called them to do that. This is not one of those jobs that people just sign up for. No, God specifically called these people, and they've been appointed as elders. And so God's called them, and he says, look, do it willingly. If God has placed his call in your life, do it willingly. He says this, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not to make much of oneself, but to serve others. This is the mind of Christ that Philippians 2 gives us, that we're not to look only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. Moreover, we're to share the same mind, we're to have the same mind of Christ, one who didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but instead gave his very life for us. So the picture of leadership that elders, that pastors, that shepherds are meant to model is one of humility. It's one in recognition of the fact that these are God's people that we serve. Finally, he says this, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples. This is the goal of the pastor, of the shepherd, is to, is to not lord over, as this language is used. It takes, it takes you really back to Mark 10, Jesus sitting with his disciples and saying, For the Son of Man came 
came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. In that moment, when Jesus tells his disciples this, he's really saying, look, you, you know how the Gentiles are. You know how the people of this world are. They lord over people. They want to have authority. They want to put their throat on their neck and say, I'm the one in power. He's like, it's not to be that way with you. You're to be people who really serve by leading. And you lead others by serving. And look at verse 4. You see this. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Well, what does that mean? Well, Peter's writing to a context, a group of people that are experiencing, in many ways, athletic competition for some of the first times, at least in a documented sense, right? This is like the Greco-Roman world where people would com compete in Olympic-style events, and they would receive a crown, and that crown would be one that would be woven together with leaves of sorts, right? Like, we've, we've seen some pictures of ancient Greece and mythology and all those types of things, and you see all these people that are wearing these crowns of leaves, well, here's what Peter's saying in this moment. There are people that are earning achievements and seeking to be desired in this world that are trying to carve out an identity for themselves here, and they're re receiving crowns. They're getting awarded. But make no mistake that that's going to fade. It's going to die. It's, it was literally dead the moment it was put on somebody's head. There's no glory in that. No, but there is glory in Jesus Christ, the one who gives the unfading crown of glory. He's in. They get to take part in that. So all of that, in so many ways, is a picture of, look, the people that are in pastoral leadership, not just in a season of suffering, but for all time, are meant to be ones who are humble. That is the call, to live under and walk with people who shepherd out of humility. Second, it's not just, there's not just supposed to be humility in the church and pastoral leadership, but also in humility as the people of God. Look at this in verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. A couple of things are really, really important here. Now, when we read that, it's, it's very normal for, for us to read that and say, okay, there are these elders, there are these people who are older, and then there are these people who are younger. And this is all about age. And I want to be very clear, historically, there, there's a case to be made for the fact that those who are elders would likely be of a certain age at times and have walked with Jesus for, for some time or be more mature in their faith. But this language of younger doesn't really mean what it means to you and me. Like, younger people are those who are really middle-aged people in Peter's mind. Those are the people who are younger. Often when we think younger, and look, I turned 40 uh, in a few weeks, and, and I think that's younger, right? Like, I, don't, I didn't even think I would make 40, you know, when I was a kid. I didn't know that, like, if you got there, that seemed strange to me, right? I thought Jesus would come back way before I hit 40. But now that I'm there, 40's looking pretty young, Right? Yeah, 50 is the new 40, and 60 is the new 50, and we go on and on and on, right? Peter kind of has the same idea. He's saying, look, these people that are younger are really of a certain age, but in addition to that, he actually uses a word that should clue us into the fact that this is not just about people who are old and people who are young. He uses that word likewise, and when he does so, he's really hearkening back to the idea of establishing groups of people. So if you look back to, if you've, if you've got your Bible with you in 1 Peter right now, go back to chapter 3 and look at verses 1 and look at verses 7 and you're going to see likewise. 
And when you see likewise, what Peter is doing is he's talking about these two groups. Who are they? Husbands and wives. So that language is meant to set apart and create an understanding for the reader that there are these two groups. That's really all he's doing. So he's not saying here that the younger have to be younger. He's really saying there are elders who are, who are shepherding in many ways and, are, and are, are really seeking to serve with their authority. But then there's also this group who's the younger. That's not just people that are of young age. It's really comprised of everybody else. We know that also because look at what he says next. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. It's all-encompassing. He's saying that everybody, that the very people of God, are meant to be characterized by humility. That every single one of us is meant to live and walk humbly with one another. And he uses this verse, as Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34, is where this language comes from about proud God opposing the proud and giving grace to the humble. This is Proverbs 3, 34. It says this, Toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. Peter's drawing on this wisdom to help believers understand that the life of the Christian, for all of us, all of us, is meant to be one of humility. That's how we're to interact with one another. That in our conversations, even as we seek to rebuke or critique or speak with another believer in a way where we want to exhort them, there's got to be humility. There's got to be an understanding of the fact that we are what we are because of who Christ says we are, not because of our importance or what we think we know or what we think we have. No, no, no. Far be it from us to live that way. Instead, we're meant to be humble towards one another. So this is what the church is meant to look like in a season of suffering and for all time. Not just humility and pastoral leadership and humility as a people of God, but also, third and finally, personal humility. That you and I ought to be humble as individuals. Peter writes, and he says this in verse 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. What's he saying in this moment? Well, he's saying that the world around you that you're not a part of in so many ways because you're in Christ now, the world around you shows you a picture of people who are just constantly trying to exalt themselves. They're constantly trying to show, look, look at this achievement. Look at what I've done. Look at what I have. Look at who so-and-so says I am. And as a result, I'll be exalted. I'll be lifted up. I'll be given identity. I'll be given power. I'll be given preference. I'll be given all of these things. And Peter says, you don't understand. The way of the Christian is that God exalts you, not you. God is the one who lifts you up and exalts you. And he does it in his time, but it happens through humility. Humility is the way that this happens. He says, humble yourself, therefore, under God's mighty hand. And he's doing something really important here. When Peter uses this language of mighty hand, he's taken us back. He's taken these believers back, all of us back to Exodus chapter 3. And a number of different places in the Old Testament, specifically not only Exodus 3, but also 18 and Deuteronomy 3, 4, 5, 7, 8, and 19 and 23. Like all of these different places in Scripture, this, where she, the mighty hand of God is used, but he's taken us back to see what it means for God to care for us with his mighty hand. This is Exodus chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. It says this, 
This is the burning bush scenario. If you have your Bible before you and look at Exodus 3, you'll see that. But God's speaking with Moses saying this, but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. What's Peter saying here? He's saying that there's great joy in being humble because we know that it's actually God, it's his sovereign, it's his omnipotent, mighty hand that's going to care for us. He's the one that's going to care for us. I can't care for myself the way God is going to care for me, the way God is going to deliver me, the way God is going to protect me. I can't do it in and of myself. Instead, he is the one that will do it. And then look at this. This precedes it. Where does that come from? Where does God's desire to care for us with the mighty hand come from? This is the verses that preceded it in Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 through 10. It says this. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. Look at these four words. I know their sufferings, and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt." God's mighty hand moves. Why? Because he sees the oppression of his people. You know what Peter's doing in this moment? And he's sharing with these believers in Asia Minor who are living in a different world from the world of Exodus in that moment, just as we're living in a different world from them. You know what he's sharing with them? God's going to deliver you. Because that's who he is. That's what he does. And, And the motivation for that is not what you do. It's not what you earn. It's not what you make happen. It's because he has seen you. He's seen your oppression. He's seen your pain. He's seen the struggles, the things that you are walking through. He's seen those things. And it's out of his heart, his deep heart of compassion, that he comes to you. This is what he says. He says, I know their sufferings. He's talking to Moses and he says, I know the sufferings of my people. What has Peter said for five chapters? That he knows the sufferings that these believers are experiencing, but moreover, Jesus Christ knows suffering. Suffering that we can't imagine. Peter knows because he's seen the sufferings. Peter saw the suffering of the opposition, the oppression that Jesus lived in and walked in every single day. From Pharisees, from Sadducees to others, people that mocked and scorned and spit on him, right? These scorners. But you know the wildest thing? Is that Peter was one of them. You know what's unique about Peter? is that he describes that he knows the sufferings of Christ, that he shares in those sufferings, and he does. But Peter was also that one who abandoned Jesus in his moment of suffering. Remember? 
Peter's mantra was, Jesus, it doesn't end this way. It doesn't end this way. You don't die. In fact, I'll die for you. And Jesus looks at him and says, you're going to deny me three times. That's going to happen. And Peter can't fathom it likely. But he knows the suffering. And he also knows that he's the one that inflicted. But look at these words of hope that Peter will give. He says, humble yourselves. So the proper time he may exalt you. And then he describes what it looks like to live the life of humility personally. This is it. In his final words, this is what's important for Peter to communicate. He says this. If humility looks like this, in verse 7, casting all your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. You know what Peter's doing in this moment by bringing us this Exodus language of mighty hand and drawing us back into the very story of God? It's that God sees those he loves. He sees them. He knows their oppression. He knows their struggle. He knows your suffering. You might think this is nuts, but God knows your suffering. How? Because Jesus Christ, his son, has walked through all of it. And I look at a room full of people that I love, brothers and sisters, but I know, I know you and I know your story. And some of you know mine reasonably well too. And I can share with you very plainly that, that we've suffered. We've suffered at the hands of, of people who are outsiders, who are, who, are, who are truly a part of this world that, that have, have pushed against us and marginalized us for our faith, we've suffered inside because we've hurt one another. And we haven't cared for one another well. And we've just experienced the hurt and the effects of a broken world. But Peter says, for all the anxieties, anxiety, like real anxiety, that we have. There's a place to go with it. Humility looks like recognizing I can't save myself. I'm going to cast every anxiety that I have on the Lord. And there's reason to do it. It's not just that he's responsible for us. It's that he loves us. Like he really, really loves you. He loves you. He loves you. He knows everything about you, and he loves you. There's this book um, that, that I've read several times over the past few years. Uh, it's called Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. It's written by this guy named Dane Ortland. Is anybody familiar with this? In it, it's really informed in many ways um, by this gentleman named Thomas Goodwin, who is uh, a Puritan pastor. And Goodwin talks about the very heart of Christ. And really, the whole text is centered around the idea of really drawing on and explaining Matthew 11. Jesus' words, come to me, you who are weary, and I'll give you rest. For I am gentle and lowly of heart. The thing that's so beautiful about it is it really points out that, that you want to know what the heart of Jesus is like? He tells you. He's gentle and lowly. 
He wants you to come to him. He's approachable. And here's the thing that Goodwin says that, that is, is so astounding to me. If you believed it, you would go to him. If you and I really believed it, we would go to him. We would cast our anxieties on him. We would cast our cares upon him. Consistently, fervently, always giving him everything. Totally and purely vulnerable. Why? I want you to think about the person or persons in your life that you take the hardest things to. That you can be the most you around and with. I don't know who that person is for you, but I know one very true thing about them, and that's this, that they care for you. And it's because they care for you that you can go to them. Peter's telling these believers how to walk through suffering. He's saying that this is what the church ought to look like. What we're all a part of, this is what it ought to look like. There ought to be people that are shepherds, that lead, that are, that are humble in their leadership. There ought to be relationships we have with others that are characterized by humility. And you ought to be someone who recognizes that you can't do anything for you, but instead God has done everything for you in Jesus, and therefore you should be humble. And then in a season, in a moment of suffering, that will transform your life, my life, all of our lives. Peter's saying something really important here at the end of this. The God of the universe. Look back into chapter 4, verse 19. The God created all things. He's not just responsible for you. He loves you. He cares for you. And you know how Peter knows that? Look at the very last two verses of this passage. Verse 10 and 11. And after you suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So to him be dominion forever. How can Peter say that? How can Peter say what Jesus will do for you? And I don't just mean the proverbial you, I mean you, like actually you. How, how can Peter say that this is what he's going to do for you? You know how he can say that? Because Jesus did it for him. Look at these verses in John chapter 21 that we read earlier, verses 15 through 17, and see this exchange again. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, then tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Jesus is not hard of hearing. Jesus did not fail to understand what Peter uttered. Jesus is doing something beautiful and radically intentional in this moment. In these three questions, he's restoring Peter. He's restoring him. Those three denials are no more. 
Because of what Peter did? No, because of what Jesus has done. So this is Peter's encouragement to us that, quite frankly, it doesn't matter who you are or where you come from or what suffering you're walking through right now. If you believe in Jesus Christ, that God raised him from the dead, that he died for your sins, then confess that with your mouth and you can know that Jesus is your Lord and Savior today. You can repent of life apart from him and believe in the good news of Jesus today. And if you've been a believer for, look, some of you in here have been a believer longer than I've been alive. And you laugh at 40 and you think, like, just wait and you see what's coming, right? You don't have to laugh like that hard, but today you get the opportunity to believe in the gospel again. And we get the opportunity to individually walk out of this place and say, you know what? I can cast my cares on the Lord because he cares for me. He loves me. And guess what? I can relate to other people in the body with humility. And finally, and look, I get to say this personally, and you need to pray for me that I would be the kind of person that would say, you know what? I love pastoring. I love caring for you, not you as my people, you as God's people. But if you've met me, you know that I've got some faults. I'm not perfect at this by any means. And there's ways and opportunities for me to grow. And you could pray for me continually as I am, that I would be humble. And I'd be a lifelong learner of what it looks like to lead and care and shepherd God's people as I follow Jesus. Let's pray those things for ourselves, for one another. And I, I covet your prayers that you would pray for me, that I would follow Jesus and love him well in order to model what love looks like for brothers and sisters like you. Amen? If we can, let's take a moment and pray together. Heavenly Father, truly it is you that hold all things together by the power of your mighty hand. You deliver us. You teach us how to be humble. And then in moments of suffering, we do not exalt ourselves, but trust in you to lift us up whenever the time is right. Help us be humble together. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just a couple of things before uh, we depart. Uh, this, this morning, uh, you heard in the announcement that we're going to have a Q&A session tonight. Look, I don't, I don't think it's lost on myself or a number of you that we've had uh, some, some real challenges and some real pains and some struggles recently uh, and just uh, ultimately some changes in leadership here at our church with regard uh, to lay elders. But we also got elders uh, at Mount Laurel. We function really as one church on two campuses with with one elder board. So those guys are going to be here tonight. Senior Pastor Adam Robinson, uh, Mike Manti, the chair of the elders, uh, Rob Zalosi, Tony Bell, Dave Watson. Those folks will be here alongside myself to field some questions tonight as we really talk about where we are as a church and where we're going. 